It's Friday, December 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The pandemic has accelerated the exit of many Americans from big cities and tax-heavy states to cheaper ones that can provide lower costs, bigger living spaces, and a better quality of life. New York and California has seen a big exodus, and people are moving to places like Texas and Florida. Austin gained the most people between April and October this year. Ms. Elena Egothopoulou, reporter at Bloomberg News, joins us for how the pandemic is speeding up relocation. Next, as coronavirus vaccines are rolling out, the big question is, who is next in line? A CD panel is meeting this weekend to discuss recommendations for who will get the vaccine after healthcare workers and residents of nursing homes. Groups such as teachers, firefighters, and even camp counselors are lobbying to be next. Rachel Rubine, healthcare reporter at Politico, joins us for who are the next most essential group. Finally, getting into the end of the year, everyone is experiencing COVID fatigue and parental burnout has reached a tipping point. Parents have had an especially jarring year, having to balance everything from staying healthy, juggling remote learning for the kids, and also trying to balance work life. Anna North, senior reporter at Vox, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And so anyone who really wanted to move back home or closer to family or in a place that's warmer or colder, that sort of gives them the ability to pursue their hobbies or in cities where the option of home ownership is more attainable or cities that are just less dense and therefore safer to walk around during the pandemic. Joining us now is Ms. Elena Egothopoulou. Thanks for joining us, Ms. Elena. Thank you for having me. Wanted to talk about something that's been going on for some time now, exodus from big states and big cities. California, New York has seen this for some time now, especially now that the pandemic has hit and made it especially hard to live in some of these cities, you know, isolation. There's a lot that really goes into it. High taxes is uh, really something that for people that make a lot of money in these states is a big driver for them to leave. But for a lot of everyday Americans now, lower costs of living, bigger homes, better quality of life. This is driving a lot of people to leave some of these big states. And we have a list now, actually, of some of the states that a lot of these people are actually going to. So, Ms. Elena, help us walk through some of this, why people are leaving and where they're going to. You know, residents of New York City and the San Francisco Bay Area have long sort of tolerated high expenses, really small apartments or other disadvantages in those cities because they had access to more jobs, arts, culture and entertainment. But remote working really opened up the possibility for people to live and work wherever they want to. And without entertainment, without restaurants, events or even just work networking really possible any longer because of COVID-19 in cities like New York or San Francisco or Oakland, which are very high cost and very high tax, those cities sort of lost their value and paying to live there just didn't seem as worth it at the moment for a lot of people. And so anyone who really wanted to move back home or closer to family or in a place that's warmer or colder, that sort of gives them the ability to pursue their hobbies or in cities where the option of home ownership is more attainable or cities that are just less dense and therefore safer to walk around during the pandemic, COVID-19 really presented them with this sort of silver lining to do so. And so what we did was we looked at data that was analyzed by LinkedIn based on zip code changes in user profiles this past year. And those changes showed people moving to places like Austin and Dallas, Texas. Phoenix was a big one. Tampa and Jacksonville in Florida were big cities. So was Nashville, Charleston, Charlotte. Those are the cities that have gained the most people. On the other hand, we saw cities like New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Boston, Detroit sort of lose the most people. 
And one of the big drivers, as I mentioned earlier, you know, taxes is such a huge thing. Some of these states where people are going to don't take any income tax. And that's a big driver for a lot of people. It definitely is, right? And so the states that don't have an income tax are states like Texas and Florida. It was a big factor. And, you know, low taxes in states like Texas and Florida are also reasons why a lot of billionaires like Elon Musk or Joe Rogan sort of decided to move there. But people who are not billionaires said that taxes was only just one of the considerations that they had. The most important part of their decision to move was the cost of living and the quality of life. That is what people really put at the top of their like priority list, given where we are right now with, with COVID. And what's interesting is, you know, a lot of these people kept the same jobs and the same salaries, which are just so much more worth it in places that coffee, gas, groceries, yoga, gym, all those services are cheaper, but so is rent, yeah. right? We spoke to people who moved from a one be- a one room with like a tiny window in Borham Hill, Brooklyn, which is one of the most, you know, hot spots to live right now in the middle of New York City to two bedroom, two bathroom apartments in Austin or Dallas, Texas. And so they really found more space. But what was important to remember is while the amount of money that they're able to sort of save it gone up, so did sometimes the cost was offset by other things. So for example, think about going to a city that doesn't have public transportation. That means that you might have to buy a car and that comes with insurance. Or if you are deciding to live in a, in a bigger house, that requires upkeep or renovations. And so in some instances, we saw the cost being offset by other things. But for the most part, the quality of life and the ability to sort of live wherever you can because of remote working really opened up a lot of possibilities for people. The relocation is not always as easy as you might think. You did mention you spoke to a bunch of people, obviously, for this article, but some people also mentioned you know, the social aspects of it, too. While you're in a new place, it is harder to make new friends. And especially right now with COVID shutting a lot of things down, I think uh, you mentioned somebody in Arizona that said maybe last year there was a ton of people out and about, and now it's there's a lot of dead zones. So that's another thing that is just something to think about if you do move away. But so many people that you've spoken to because of the pandemic and all these factors that you've been mentioning, a lot of them were already planning on leaving, but this just kind of accelerated the, their decisions to move. They had that idea in the back of their heads and COVID just really presented the perfect opportunity for them to do so because of remote working. But it comes with a lot of challenges. One of them is the social aspect. Moving to a new city during a pandemic means that you can't really enjoy the city as you'd like. You can't meet people as easily. And if you don't really know someone from the area from beforehand, getting out there and meeting people is definitely more hard and it can feel isolating. But there's also other technical aspects. A lot of people that want to excel in their careers are leaving behind some cities where their industries are extremely important. And those people do realize that at some point they're going to have to go back to work. And that means that they're going to have to figure out whether they are going to move back to the hub of where their industry is or if they're going to stay where they are. And so that's a consideration for people who are thinking, oh, should I buy a house right now or should I just rent? And then another thing that we really stumbled upon when we spoke to people is this idea, you know, remote working is temporary. So a lot of companies haven't really figured out exactly whether they're going to extend working from home indefinitely or not. But for some companies, there's going to be an expectation that offices are going to open up again and people will need to show up in person. And so for people who are making salaries, say New York salaries and are paying New York taxes, if they end up you know, moving to another place that has lower taxes, is that going to affect the sort of overall salary that they make in a company if the company decides to allow them 
to move to a city more permanently in the future. And so these are all considerations that people really should have in mind when they're deciding, hey, do I want to get out of this high cost, high tax city that I am in right now? Ms. Elena Egalfupolu, reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I'm thankful that we got the 84,000. Uh, I'm thankful that we're getting, you know, around 250,000 doses next week that we can continue to give to our frontline healthcare workers and other people that meet the 1A criteria. Joining us now is Rachel Rubine, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about, you know, now that we're seeing vaccines roll out, very soon we'll have two vaccines going out there between Pfizer and Moderna. We're going to start vaccinating more people. The big question is, who's next in line? The first people that are getting them, obviously, are healthcare workers and people in nursing homes. But the CDC is actually going to meet on Sunday. An advisory panel will meet to discuss who's going to be the next tier, who will be the next people. And there's already a bunch of groups, trade groups and other people like that, that are lobbying, basically, to be the next in line. We're seeing things like Teachers, firefighters, camp counselors even are getting into the mix. So, Rachel, tell us what we know about how the selection process will be of who's next in line for these vaccines. Great question. So, as you mentioned, the CDC's advisory panel on Sunday will take a vote on this topic. And essentially, one of the things they're going to be deciding about is these prioritization schemes known as 1B and 1C. So who comes after healthcare workers and long-term care residents? So they're kind of weighing between essential workers, if they should go first, or if Americans over the age of 65 should go next, or people with high-risk medical conditions. So on Sunday, they'll take that vote. And then the CDC director will need to kind of approve that recommendation. But it's important to point out that these are non-binding recommendations. So states do have the ultimate say here. And so we'll likely see sort of a patchwork with states doing different things and deciding among different groups of populations. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, it's a very tough thing to discuss and kind of decide on. I'm assuming that's why it's non-binding that way so the states can kind of have the ultimate say. But, you know, that big question, who is most essential? And, you know, you get people like law enforcement, teachers obviously are high up there because they're dealing with kids. All these people have a stake in the matter. And it's just interesting to hear because you hear a lot of people saying, oh, I don't want to take the vaccine just yet. I want to wait and see how it goes with other people. But at the same time, these groups are lobbying for their members to be next. So, I mean, it's just an interesting thing to see how that's rolling out. It's kind of posing a question of who's most essential. I mean, you know, when you think of essential workers, groups that are lobbying for this, teachers, firefighters, police, et cetera, you know, what they say is they've been in harm's way. And so they want to see their population vaccinated. There was a big consensus, obviously, for healthcare workers to be first. Obviously, they're on the front lines of this whole thing. But one of the interesting things that the advisory committee the last time, you know, they didn't really make very detailed recommendations. You know, they said healthcare workers are first, but they didn't say, you know, what specialty of healthcare worker could be first. And that was kind of a thing that threw a lot of people off. There was other people in the medical profession that were saying, well, we're not in that group. And, you know, we've been left out. People that work with addiction or mental health patients, they kind of felt left out of the first wave of people. 
So what you saw with the first round is healthcare workers. You're right. There was wide consensus on them being really the top of the line as they've been battling this surging pandemic and people hospitalized in their facility. So what you saw is states then either crafting advisory panels to be a little more specific, or you saw, you know, hospitals kind of making those decisions. Like you mentioned, the CDC's advisory panel was not detailed on which specialties go first. They did note if there needed to be any kind of sub-prioritization that jurisdictions could consider those workers who are routinely within six feet of patients. And so I talked to the chairman of the CDC's advisory panel and asked him this question on if they're going to be like really specific with the detail in which workers go first. And I mean, he said that they haven't, you know, how decided how detailed the recommendations will be. And this was his quote. He said, in general, our approach is not to be prescriptive. Rachel Rubine, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for your time. Whether their kids have been able to go back to school in person or whether maybe they've been able to form a pod or something. But a lot of families haven't had that option. So there's lots and lots of parents out there where they're like going into month nine, month 10 of having their kids at home doing remote school or out of childcare, And as you say, they're still trying to work. Joining us now is Anna North, senior reporter at Vox. Thanks for joining us, Anna. Thanks so much for having me. We've been talking a lot about COVID fatigue on the podcast. We're getting towards the end of the year. We've been dealing with this pandemic for months. There's light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to vaccines coming on board and being rolled out. But throughout this whole process, I mean, the burnout has been very real. We've talked about on the educational side, teacher shortages and things like that. But parents are also getting a lot of this. Obviously, overnight, they became teachers when remote learning happened and schools switched over like that. It's been a tough time for them to balance that, balance taking care of their kids, balance still trying to work and make money throughout the pandemic. It's been very tough. Anna, you wrote a big article about how a lot of parents are reaching this tipping point. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, when we started talking about this piece, my editor and I, I think one thing that we were noticing is throughout this pandemic, some parents, some families have been able to figure out some kind of childcare system, whether their kids have been able to go back to school in person or whether maybe they've been able to form a pod or something. But a lot of families haven't had that option. So there's lots and lots of parents out there where they're like going into month nine, month 10 of having their kids at home doing remote school or out of childcare. And as you say, they're still trying to work. And I think, you know, we talked about this a lot in the spring. We talked about it a bit in the summer, but like for lots of parents, it's still a reality. It's not getting any easier. And I think for a lot of folks, it's actually getting harder. And there's a lot of different ways this plays out. Obviously there are those parents that can work from home and then they're inundated obviously with taking care of kids and being teachers and and helping them with their schoolwork. I mean, it's especially tough for those parents that, don't have that luxury of at least being home. You know, they have to work. So maybe their kids are left to fare for their own with the remote learning. I mean, there's a lot of different scenarios going on. Some parents have been able to work from home. And I think in some ways, it's hard to compare easier, harder. But in some ways, the folks that have the easiest are if you have two parents in the home and both of them are able to work from home, at least you can maybe kind of split shifts and kind of work it out that way. Not saying that's easy, but it's, you know, maybe doable. 
But then if you have someone working outside the home as a frontline worker, if you have both parents working outside the home as frontline workers, give a single parent family where someone's working outside the home, then it's just really hard. There aren't a lot of good options for people. And, you know, we've started to see really large numbers of women dropping out of the workforce. And in particular, we've seen really large numbers of single moms dropping out of the workforce, which in a way is concerning for a lot of reasons. I mean, you know, number one, that, you know, we're possibly rolling back some of the pay equity gains, some of the workforce participation gains that we've seen over the last decade when it comes to women working, you know, but then also it may be the case that if you're a single parent, you're the breadwinner for your family. If you need to quit your job to take care of your kids or, you know, we've seen reports of people actually just being fired from their jobs or being let go because they couldn't find childcare then how are you putting food on the table? These are just really wrenching decisions that parents are having to go through. One of the words that gets thrown around a lot in all of this is guilt. Parents are feeling guilty sometimes that maybe that they're not doing enough. And it's tough because, you know, we're talking about all the pressures, you know, on on all sides, being a parent, being a teacher's aide, let's say, because you're trying to help with the remote learning, balancing work, and they feel guilty that they're not doing enough when it's just coming at them from all angles. One mom that I talked to actually said something like, you know, if there was one word I could use to describe this time, it would be guilt. And she expressed feeling really guilty that her kids couldn't play with other kids right now. I mean, she was talking about in her neighborhood, she sees like some kids starting to play together again, but she has an underlying condition that puts her at greater risk for COVID-19. So her family has to be especially careful. And, you know, just that guilt of not, you know, having to have very strict rules for your kids, even though you know, she explains to them, mommy could get sick. You know, it's a very serious situation. But, you know, I'm a parent. I have, I have a little kid and I, I totally understand that guilt. He's not really old enough for me to feel too bad about him missing out. But yeah, I think anytime you're in a different situation where you're suddenly having to work while you're also taking care of your kid with the other hand, like guilt is bound to come up. And I think it's gendered in a lot of ways, too. There have been some parents that have found a couple of bright spots. I noticed in your article, some of the kids, because they were being taught by their parents and being more engaging with their kids, they found a new love for school or or new interest in different topics and stuff. So there are people that are making the best of it. I know a lot of people say that we need greater investment in childcare infrastructure in the country. Obviously, through the pandemic, it's tough to keep some of these places open as cases rise and things like that. But there's a lot that can be done to help out parents and then these childcare workers as well. You know, one of the most interesting things I learned was in terms of people that are they're finding some positives here is from both experts and parents that I talked to, folks were saying, in some cases for Black parents, there's been this sort of bright spot in that parents are able to direct their kids' education and maybe be teaching them things they're not learning in school, including if they go to predominantly a white school where they don't learn. You know, they're not seeing role models of people that look like them. You know, so I think like that's an interesting bright spot, too, that I was I was very interested to hear. But definitely in terms of solutions, I mean, we went into this crisis with, frankly, underfunded schools and underfunded childcare, and it's only gotten worse. And with lack of funding, lack of funding for the recovery, I'm worried that it's going to get worse still. So I think A good thing is that this crisis has sort of exposed like the importance of education, the importance of childcare, And I'm hopeful that we're mindful of that going forward. But I'm obviously also very worried that we won't be. Anna North, senior reporter at Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.